0: I do. Frankly my dear I don't give a damn.
1: The year is 1939. Americans are crowding into movie theaters to watch Victor Fleming's Gone with the Wind. Largely domesticated since World War I, the United States foreign policy was not a burning issue for the average American. The stock market had just crashed ten years earlier and each passing year brought greater and greater hardships through the Great Depression. So when Europe was crying for help in the late 1930s, asking what shall they do about an oppressive dictator moving westward, the United States frankly said they could give a damn. Welcome to another edition of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students, where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in episode one of our three-part series on World War II, we look at long-term and short-term causes of a second world war.
0: If I didn't care
1: The Hoover administration did set the tone for this isolationist foreign policy in the early 1930s with the Hawley-Smoot Tariff. That was the largest protective tariff in U.S. history. Roosevelt, however, saw that this tariff was forestalling American economic recovery. And so by decades end, Congress did act to make the United States trade policy more flexible, both with Europe and Asia. And in addition, FDR broke a 16-year-old diplomatic freeze with the Soviet Union by extending formal recognition. And to foster better relations with Latin America, Roosevelt declared a bold new good neighbor policy. However, the United States' isolationism would soon come to an end and would instead be intervening in something much bigger, something much bigger in not only Europe, but the Pacific. The day after Franklin Roosevelt took the oath of office, the Nazi Reichstag gave Adolf Hitler absolute control of Germany. Hitler had campaigned, spewing anti-Semitic rhetoric and vowing to rebuild a strong Germany. During the week prior to FDR's inauguration, Japan withdrew from the League of Nations for the condemnation of Japanese aggressions in China fascism, and militarism were spreading across Europe and East Asia. Meanwhile, Americans were not bracing themselves for the coming war. They were determined to avoid it at all costs. The first act of European aggression was not committed by Nazi Germany. Rather, it was committed by Italy. Fascist dictator Benito Mussolini ordered the Italian army to invade Ethiopia in 1935 the League of Nations refused to act, despite the desperate pleas from Ethiopia.
0: Moving forward with the Italian troops across the barren hills and fever-laden valleys of northern Abyssinia, Pate's cameramen are watching Italy's advance. In country like this, the invader is sweeping forward, crushing the Abyssinian resistance under the steel tread of his mechanized army.
1: The following year, Hitler and Mussolini formed the Rome-Berlin Axis, an alliance so named because its leaders believed that the line that connected the two capitals would be the axis around which the entire world would revolve. Later in 1936, Hitler marched troops into the Rhineland of Germany, directly breaching the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed after World War I. While fascist aggressors were chalking up victories across Europe, America, Britain and France sat on the sidelines. The desire to avoid repeating the mistakes of World War I was so strong that no government was willing to confront the dictators. The United States Congress and President Roosevelt passed three important laws, all called Neutrality Acts. They were directly aimed at reversing the mistakes made that led to the American entry into the First World War. The Neutrality Act of 1935 prohibited the shipping of arms to nations at war, including the victims of aggressions. This would reduce the possibility of maritime attacks on American vessels. The Neutrality Act of 1936, just a year later, renewed the law of the previous year with the additional restrictions that no loans could be made to belligerent nations. Nor were any Americans permitted to travel on ships of nations at war. There would be no more Lusitania incidents. A Neutrality Act of 1937 limited the trade of even non-munitions to belligerent nations to a cash-and-carry basis. This meant that the nation in question would have to use its ships to transport goods to avoid American entanglements on the high seas. Isolationists in Congress felt reasonably confident that these measures would keep the United States out of another war. But as the decade passed, President Roosevelt was growing increasingly skeptical. Never
0: before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has our American civilization been in such danger... As now.
1: Emboldened by Western inaction, Hitler's troops marched into Austria in 1938 and annexed the entire country.
0: The army that Germany has built up in four years swings in honor past Hungary's strongman Admiral Horthy. The young men of the new German Reich welded into a mighty war machine.
1: Then Hitler set his eyes upon Sudetenland, a region in western Czechoslovakia inhabited by 3.5 million Germans. In September of 38, the leaders of Britain, France, Germany, and Italy met in Munich, attempting to defuse a precarious situation. Britain and France recognized Hitler's claim to the Sudetenland and Mussolini's conquest of Ethiopia in exchange for the promise of no future aggressions. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned to Great Britain triumphantly proclaiming that he had achieved, quote, peace in our time. It would be one of the most mocked statements of the 20th century.
0: I trust that all concerned will continue their efforts to solve the Czechoslovak problem peacefully because on that turns the peace of Europe in our time.
1: European appeasement failed six months later as Hitler mockingly marched his troops into the rest of Czechoslovakia. In peace,
0: Hitler has achieved his objects, a peace preserved by Mr. Chamberlain's intervention. But the lessons of that ordeal remain for the nations of the world to read, and in Britain, at any rate, air raid precautions will go ahead.
1: In May of 1939, Roosevelt urged congressional leaders to repeal the arms embargo of the earlier Neutrality Acts. Senators from both parties refused the request. Another bombshell crossed the Atlantic on August 24th. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin agreed to put their mutual hatred aside. Germany and the Soviet Union signed a 10-year non-aggression pact. Hitler was now free to seize the territory Germany had lost to Poland as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. And on September 1st, 1939, Nazi troops crossed into Poland from the west. Finally, on September 3rd, France and Great Britain officially declared war on Germany. World War II had begun.
0: The responsibility lies on the shoulders of one man, By his latest act of naked aggression, Hitler has committed a crime not only against Poland but against the whole human race, against the mothers and children leaving the cities of Britain under the great evacuation scheme with a smoothness and speed that avoids a single accident or delay.
1: Two days after Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany, President Roosevelt issued a proclamation of neutrality. Sound familiar? And he ordered the suspension of munition sales to all belligerents. But Roosevelt stopped short of asking that Americans remain emotionally neutral in the European conflict. FDR knew that the only chance Britain and France would have to defeat the German Reich was to have ample supplies of weaponry. He began immediately to press Congress to repeal the arms embargo.
0: The United States is following a twofold neutrality towards any and all nations which engage in wars that are not of immediate concern to the Americas.
1: Meanwhile, the European war seemed to be more talk than action. Throughout the fall and winter of 1939 and 40, Stalin moved Soviet troops into sovereign eastern European states, including eastern Poland. But Hitler's Wehrmacht was silent. Europeans nervously joked, of a phony war as the winter drew to a close. But suddenly, on April 9, 1940, the German blitzkrieg moved rapidly into Denmark and Norway.
0: It's 1940 and Hitler's legions have crushed Belgium and are about to head for the Maginot Line extension below Sedan.
1: As the weeks passed, the German war machine steadily advanced through the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and into familiar territory in World War I, northern France. their
0: attack were 12 tank divisions with 400 tanks to each division, plus concentrated air bombings. But it was these shells which shattered the Maginot Line, paving the way for
1: infantry. Hitler arrived in France to sign the terms of French surrender. The hapless French were forced to submit to the Germans In the very same railroad car, the Germans surrendered in 22 years earlier at the end of World War I. Britain was the only democracy in Europe in open opposition to Germany. The new British Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately pleaded with Roosevelt for assistance. In the summer of 1940, Hitler launched Operation Sea Line, an all-out assault on the British mainland. The Royal Air Force of Britain battled the German Luftwaffe in the greatest air battle in history, as Americans watched nervously. Slowly but surely, American public opinion shifted towards helping the British. The Committee to Defend America by aiding the Allies launched a propaganda campaign to mobilize the American Republic. Groups like the America First Committee which contained prominent Americans such as Charles Lindbergh, insisted a hemispheric defense was the wisest choice for the United States to follow. A great debate about isolationism was once again on.
0: Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their final power.
1: Miraculously, Britain held its own with Germany while America deliberated. In September 1940, the United States agreed to the transfer of 50 old destroyers to the British fleet in exchange for naval bases in the Western Hemisphere. By directly aiding the Allies, America could no longer hide behind the shield of neutrality. (laughs) At Roosevelt's urging, Congress authorized the construction of new planes to defend America's east coast. Congress also enacted the first peacetime draft in the nation's history in September of 1940. The interventionist argument seemed to be prevailing, but debate continued well into 1941. The destroyer deal was helpful, but Britain simply did not have the financial reserves to pay for all of these weapons that they needed. Roosevelt feared another post-war debt crisis, So he hatched a new plan called Lend-Lease.
0: They need planes. From America, they will get planes. Yes, from America, they need food. And from America, they will get food.
1: The Congress hotly argued over this proposal, particularly Senator Robert Taft reported, Lending war equipment is a good deal like lending chewing gum, he says. You don't ever want it back. In March of 1941, after a great deal of controversy, Congress approved the Lend-Lease Act, which eventually appropriated $50 billion of aid to the Allies. Meanwhile, Roosevelt began an unprecedented third term.
0: Yo, what do you know? I just got the heck from a
1: board show. Neutrality was no longer a facade behind which America could hide. Hitler saw Lend Lease as tantamount to a war declaration and ordered immediate attacks on American ships. Roosevelt urged Congress and Americans to take action. In his famous For Freedom speech, he enumerates what the rights of any citizen of the world are and why it is important for America to lead the way.
0: First is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way, everywhere in the world. Third, Freedom from want, which translated into world terms, means economic understandings, which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from
1: fear. Congress still vacillated. Roosevelt met with Churchill in the summer of 1941 and agreed to the Atlantic Charter, a statement that outlined Anglo-American war aims. At this point, the United States was willing to commit almost everything to the Allied war machine, money, resources, and diplomacy. The only thing missing was American troops. And that concludes part one of our three-part series on World War II. I'm Mr. Nasosi, and I thank you for joining us on Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students, where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Coming up in part two, we'll take a look at America's involvement in the war, which started in the Pacific and continued into Europe, and of course, efforts on the home front. We'll see you next time.